Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the finance minister prepares to release a fall economic statement. Deputy Prime Minister Freeland will debut the Liberal plan for reimagining the Canadian economy. But it will not be a plan for getting Canadians back to work. And it will not be a plan for helping shuttered small businesses stay open. Because there is no plan for the economy without a plan for rapid testing and vaccines. As COVID numbers rise, what moves will we see this week from governments across the country? More of the same with with an increasing focus on the challenge uh, in the provinces to try and keep these numbers under control and and the different philosophies you're seeing uh, in different parts of the country where uh, some premiers are less hesitant uh, to impose tighter restrictions and uh, potentially pay a political price from from some sectors of their economy for doing that. And jockeying for political position as we await a vaccine. That race to get to the starting line first, I can understand. But this pandemic doesn't get over until we reach the finish line. And that's why the news that uh, Canadians can expect, uh, if all goes well, uh, to have more than half of us vaccinated by um, by next September, is significant positive news. It's Monday, November 30th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Peter Van Dusen, CPAC's executive producer and the host of Primetime Politics. Peter, thank you for being with us. Hi, Mark. Good to speak with you. This has been such an interesting year on so many levels, and one of the unusual dynamics, of course, is that we have not had a budget and so far have not not had a fall economic update either until today. So there will be an economic statement from the new finance minister, Christia Freeland. What do you expect today? Well, a lot more detail than we got in the in the fiscal snapshot uh, from the former finance minister, Bill Morneau, uh, in July. And then again, maybe not as much detail as some people would like to see. Uh, but um, everything I'm being told is that we'll get some detailed uh, numbers and projection, projections about uh, uh, spending and about uh, you know deficit and debt, uh, unlike we got in, in the last uh, snapshot in July, and and we'll see, um, but we won't see uh, you know any return to a fiscal anchor. The government always held to the debt to GDP ratio as the reason for uh, you know borrowing borrowing lots of money and, and deficit spending and that debt to GDP ratio. Uh, you know, in the last uh, few months since the pandemic hit, has gone from you know uh, 31% debt to GDP ratio somewhere closer to 50, and yet you know that's still not uh, economists tell you that still puts Canada in a reasonably good position to to keep on deficit spending uh, to get through the pandemic and beyond. Having said that, uh, I think a lot of people uh, will be wanting to see exactly what. Uh, the new finance minister's plan is uh, to sort of rein in spending at some point, and she's made it pretty clear that we won't hear a lot about reined in spending in this economic update, so we won't get a fiscal anchor, but she's talked about putting guardrails in place for spending down the road. So I think uh, how much more is the government uh, willing to spend on pandemic programs how much will the government put by way of down payment uh, for some of their uh, building back better programs they've talked about to bring Canada's uh, economic recovery out of the pandemic? So watch for down payments for uh, international child care program, for uh, pharma care, and for, for other programs as well. Uh, 
but no big spending on those issues, just, uh, uh, you know, some financial uh, nod to those, uh, you know, liberal programs so that people believe they're serious about uh, bringing them in at some point. Yeah, and I know it's not today, but at what point do you think we will begin a discussion about where the limit on potential spending is and what kind of lasting impact all of the spending this year will have on government finances and the Canadian economy? Yeah, certainly I think that that discussion, uh, you know, will start. Uh, will start with, you know, in, in, in the wake of the economic update to some degree, but uh, really, it'll be, you know, when when we start hearing that conversation, Mark, it'll be a clash of visions, I think, at that point, and that probably takes us closer to uh, the next budget sometime in the new year, one would think March or February, depending on where we are in the pandemic. And that's where uh, we'll have, I'm sure, conservatives will, will be talking about their plan to rein in spending and continue to try and support people coming through the pandemic, uh, as will the Liberals and New Democrats. And I think uh, that raises all kinds of possibilities for um, you know a much clearer definition between where the parties are in terms of deficit spending and debt uh, and and the future of Canada's you know fiscal framework uh, and also brings us to the possibility of an election over that uh, when we get the next budget sometime as I say March or February. Yeah. All right, let's turn to what's been driving these numbers and all of the government decisions this year, and that is the pandemic itself. Uh, I feel like we've been saying week after week that uh, this is going to be a crucial week, and of course, they're all crucial, but we have seen the numbers continue to rise across Canada. The Atlantic bubble has been burst to an extent. Uh, There have been controversies over how far government should go in places like Ontario in in cracking down in in locking down. Um, so what do you expect this week in terms of the continuing evaluation over uh, the numbers themselves and what needs to be done in response to them? Well, I think you know as, as sort of rote as it sounds, I don't mean it to sound that trivial, but you know more of the same with it with an increasing focus on you know, the challenge uh, in the provinces to try and keep these numbers under control and and the different philosophies you're seeing uh, in different parts of the country where uh, some premiers are less hesitant uh, to impose tighter restrictions and uh, potentially pay a political price from from some sectors of their economy for doing that. And other premiers, uh, look to Alberta, uh, who are, uh, we know, ideologically opposed to uh, slamming businesses shut um, during the pandemic. So I think that's going to be underlined again. I think we're going to see a, uh, an increase, uh, I guess an, in- an increase in the debate tension around uh, how prepared we are. Uh, and these two things, of course, are intertwined, Mark. I mean, how prepared we are to roll out vaccines and when we're going to get them, because that's all tied to the decisions that premiers have to make about which parts of the economy to close. So the sooner we get the vaccine and the more people get vaccinated, uh, the easier those decisions become about closing down because presumably if the vaccine works, you have to do that less often. But we stay, you know, may still see some of that in coming waves till everybody gets, gets vaccinated. So I, I expect to see a, that heightened conversation around uh, just how ready we are with more and more these days the federal government uh, you know, boasting that a plan is is in the works. We've got a plan. We're going to have a military NATO commander oversee it. It's all going to be good. Yes, we're ready. And provinces saying they keep coming off phone calls with the prime minister saying, you know, there's confusion. and We're not convinced we're ready. They're not clear about numbers. They're not clear about the plan. 
So I'm really going to be watching uh, for that in the next few weeks because you get the sense um, that this is either going to uh, turn out to be a a tremendous bit of planning when it finally gets pulled together or that it's going to be a a real mess when it comes time to roll this out uh, because there will not have been the, the right kind of planning done with enough time to make sure that it succeeds when we do finally start getting vaccines, which raises the other question of uh, that we're hearing more and more now, Mark, is why is there this re- reliance on international companies uh, to be able to vaccinate Canadians? You know, what happened to our own uh, industry? Yeah, and, and this issue has become uh, somewhat uh, politicized over the last few days, the last week, let's say, because there have been uh, conflicting reports about how quickly we're going to get the vaccine. Uh, the, the chairman of Moderna had to come out on the weekend and say that Canada's not at the back of the line, as had been reported previously. Uh, there, there's discussion around, you know, are we going to get the vaccine at the same time as other countries? Are we behind other countries? All of that is going on. And the opposition's pushing pretty hard on this when it comes to um, uh, suggesting that the government wasn't prepared and has made the wrong decisions. So I think we're going to see a lot more political discussion around this, as well as just the practical element of when we'll get the vaccine, how effective it is, and and how quickly it'll be rolled out. Yeah, I think one of the... You know, Aaron O'Toole was making, the Conservative leader was making this case on the weekend that Canada spent too much time trying to pull a deal together with uh, Ken Sino, the, the Chinese company that would use a Canadian biologic to uh, create a vaccine. That was, uh, that was in discussions early on in the pandemic. That fell apart. When that fell apart, uh, Canada started looking for, you know, uh, international suppliers. Uh, and that's according to Mr. O'Toole that we waited too long uh, to be canvassing these and, and putting in orders with uh, with foreign suppliers uh, because we had put all our, as he puts it, vaccine eggs in one basket uh, with this deal that didn't pan out. So was that poor planning? Uh, on the government side, you know, they, they were talking about uh, walking and chewing gum at the same time, that they were pursuing that deal, but they were already in conversation with uh, outside suppliers uh, to be able to provide Canada with a vaccine. But I think if a lot of Canadians are... Uh, this will become, um, I, I think, put in, in, into greater focus over the next couple of weeks, and a lot of Canadians will be will have more questions to ask about how come at one point we had a, uh, a, a relatively vibrant, uh, you know, pharmaceutical industry in this country and a vaccine program and so on, and here we are as the greatest pandemic ever hits, and we have no capability to manufacture a vaccine in Canada. I think for a lot of Canadians, that's a, that's a non-starter. All right. It's going to be interesting to watch today. The economic update is coming and obviously more discussion and debate about vaccines as well. Peter, thanks so much for breaking all of this down for us. Appreciate it. All right, Mark. Great to talk to you. We'll talk again next week. That's CPAC's Peter Van Dusen. Deputy Prime Minister Freeland will debut the Liberal plan for reimagining the Canadian economy. But it will not be a plan for getting Canadians back to work. And it will not be a plan for helping shuttered small businesses stay open. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Toronto Star, Chantal Hébert argues Christia Freeland has a target on her back. Hébert writes, Even in relatively good times, it's hard for a finance minister to make a good second impression. That's even truer at a time when Canada is faced with an unprecedented fiscal challenge and the party in power leads a potentially short-lived minority government. 
Whether the next federal campaign comes over the first half of 2021 or later, the Liberals' re-election to government will depend in no small part on Freeland's performance as finance minister. In the Globe and Mail, Jacqueline Best argues, We should be wary when our political leaders tell us that we must suspend our norms and make sacrifices for the sake of the economy. Best writes, As even the Ford and Kenny governments have finally begun to recognize with their latest U-turns, there is no trade-off between health and safety and the economy. It is only by giving up on the economic wishful thinking and taking decisive action to restrain the spread of the virus that we can ensure that we have a healthy population capable of rebuilding the economy in the months and years to come. At National News Watch, Don Lenahan and Andrew Balfour ask if Jason Kenney will defeat himself. They write, Joe Biden didn't win the U.S. election. Donald Trump defeated himself, and he did it by denying the truth about the pandemic. Jason Kenney's decision to become the voice of liberty as the virus rampages through Alberta seems strangely similar. He may succeed in holding on to his right flank, but lose the political mainstream who see him as increasingly out of touch. If he fails to reconnect with the reality of the pandemic, he may face the same fate as Donald Trump. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. While much of the national attention has been on today's economic update and the pandemic, there have been significant developments in the dispute over the Indigenous lobster fishery in Nova Scotia. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more on that. Mark, almost two months after the nation's attention was riveted to the outburst of violence and tensions surrounding the Indigenous lobster fishery in southwestern Nova Scotia, today the Sabiganagadi First Nation finally has a chance to go over a memorandum of understanding delivered to them yesterday from the federal government. The lawyers and members of the band are going over the document and they may well, in fact, meet with Fisheries Minister Bernadette Jordan today. It's hoped that the, uh, the document will finally spell out an orderly implementation of Mi'kmaq traditional fishing rights, first recognized by the Supreme Court of Canada and known as what's called a moderate liv- livelihood fishery. At the height of the conflict, there was a violence and destruction of private property as Mi'kmaq fishermen accused the local RCMP of not protecting them and their right to fish. Non-Indigenous and commercial fishermen accused the First Nation of threatening the conservation of the lobster stocks by fishing out of season. The RCMP presence was boosted in the region and an injunction was served and that has prevented any further clashes. But just last week, as a lucrative winter lobster fishery was set to begin, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans seized 500 lobster traps, many of them belonging to the First Nation. So the situation is still far from settled, but markets hope that this memorandum of understanding will now pave the way to an agreement respecting both Indigenous uh, fishing rights and the conservation of the resource for everyone involved. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will speak with the President and CEO of the Laurentian Bank of Canada before chairing the Cabinet meeting. He will then attend the fall economic statement to be delivered by Finance Minister Christia Freeland in the House of Commons. This evening, the Prime Minister will take part in a conversation with Harnarayan Singh as part of a virtual event celebrating Guru Nanak Devji Gurparab, Minister of Diversity Bardish Chagar, Minister of Innovation Navdeep Baines, and Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan will also take part. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Monday, November 30th. Tune into CPAC and CPAC.ca throughout the day today for coverage of the fall economic statement. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.